Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 21st of September, as we record. The first day of autumn by some calendars, including mine. Today, we are discussing two aimed stocks with potentially bright prospects and one struggling FTSE 100 giant. We will begin by looking at upstart consultancy Elixir, which reported half-year figures the other day. Then we're on to our cover story this week. It's the return of our income majors feature, examining the future income prospects of the biggest dividend payers in the UK. We are going to discuss arguably the weakest of those payers, because those are often the most interesting companies. That's Vodafone. And to finish, we are going to run the rule over another set of interim results from scientific instrument manufacturer Judges Scientific. Before all that, though, I just want to flag that we've got a new podcast landing in your feed next week, the first in a series of monthly conversations with the ISA millionaire Lord John Lee on companies he holds or has an interest in, as well as broader economic market and business trends, and the accumulated wisdom and lessons of someone with almost seven decades as a retail investor. So look out for that. As for today, though, joining me are over the line Mark Robinson, Hello there, Dan. Belated hello. Indeed. Hi, Mark. And in the studio, Arthur Sants. Hello, Dan. And on her birthday, no less, Gemma Slingo. Hi, Dan. Happy birthday, Gemma. Thank you. We're going to begin with you. Uh, Lixir, a company uh, you've covered. uh, We had it in the ideas section recently as well as covering the results. Uh, But but let's talk about those figures to begin with. How did they how did they look at the half year stage? Yeah, so it might be useful just to explain what Elixir does, I suppose. Basically, it's a quite a small management consulting firm that tries to to rival the real big giants in the industry, I suppose. Um, and it sort of frames itself as this challenger consultancy and tries to nab various talented people from, from the big companies. Um, and so far, it seems to be doing very well. So it um, had its IPO in 2020 during lockdown. And since then, it's been achieving fairly consistent double-digit growth. Um, So it had its half-year results a few days ago, um, and you saw in that that revenue was up 23% to 41.1 million, and adjusted EBITDA was up 19% to 12.3 million. So it's doing pretty well. Margins, by the very nature, are very wide because, um, you know, they can charge a lot of fees for, for what they do. So, yeah, it's an interesting company to look at, I think. And yeah, that that consultancy uh, side of things, you know, it's a small player. It's gaining some market share, or certainly gaining business from uh, some some big companies. Does it does it effectively do the same kind of thing as the big consultancies, just in a way where they can be more brash? I think that the CEO can, you know, uh, uh, cut to the chase quite often in his description of the, what the company actually does. Yeah, so it depends a little bit on who you're comparing it to. So Accenture is one of the big consultancies that's that's actually listed, so it's in the US. Um, but that one actually has a lot of its business based in companies like India and the Philippines, and it does lots of outsourcing work as well as sort of the famous consulting projects. Um, whereas Elixir is more like a strategy house, I suppose. So it focuses on projects it's like, I don't know, improving someone's business model, improving their operations. You know, they go in and try and and sort things out. Um, originally, it focused quite heavily on the financial services sector because that was the area its CEO was was most familiar with. But it's gradually sort of been expanding its reach and, I don't know, acquiring well, more and more impressive clients, I suppose. 
Yeah, some of those clients, I think uh, LVMH, Diageo, Burger King, Tesla. So certainly companies you've heard of. Obviously, we don't know exactly what they they do for them, but you know those companies see something there. With these kind of businesses, though, the the question is always about staff. You know, it's a people business. Um, it's about retention on one level, also about the ability to scale up. Is that a you know business is clearly going quite well, so even in these difficult times, is does it have the capability to scale up quickly? Is that going to be a test of how far it can grow? I think that is the big the big question, really. So its market cap at the moment is about two hundred and fifty million pounds. So it's not huge. And you have seen in the past companies trying to scale up and hiring lots of, you know, bright new consultants and actually thinking the work isn't necessarily there and you end up with all these expensive employees and productivity starting to fall. So you saw hints of it in Alpha Financial Markets Consulting's latest results um, where you could see productivity starting to waver a little bit. So um, that is a concern, I suppose. Another example, I guess, are the recruitment agencies who tend to go on massive hiring sprees and then really suffer when when the work starts to dry up. Um, But I I don't know, with Elixir, it's almost another side of the problem because they need to attract big names in the industry, I suppose. You know, they're trying to poach people from McKinsey or Bain or whoever it may be. And you need to have those big hitting partners in there in order to create the new work and, and bring in the big fees. So it's almost two completely different problems it's facing. They've got some, you know, big names or certainly people who've worked at these big businesses before on the management team. Uh, CFO, I think, worked for Accenture in their global mega deal department, which sounds uh, uh, suitably humble, and a former BT chief as executive chair as well. But but what about the the actual way they incentivize people as well? Because you wrote about this the other week, and that that's quite interesting. The the way they do it, um, the way the way they try and keep people on board, encourage them to participate in the company's growth. Yeah, so I think they identified quite early on that pay was going to be a potential issue because they can't pay partners and staff as much as they they might be able to get at the you know the massive consulting companies where the salaries are absolutely through the roof. So. They're basically relying heavily on the fact that they're listed when lots of the other rivals aren't. Um, so they try and incentivize their staff and their partners through shares, basically. Um, and I'm trying to remember what the exact figure was, but the chief executive basically said that partners can, over a decent period of time, earn 80% more at Elixir than they could at one of the big rival firms because while the cash remuneration is lower, the money they save on pay packets is basically pumped back into the business, which fuels high equity returns. So there's this promise, basically, that if they can if they can stick it out for five years or so, the the ultimate amount of money they end up with will be will be bigger. But I guess it's a little bit unproven at the moment. And there's always a flip side to share-based compensation deals as well, which is that, you know, obviously if things dry up, on the one hand, but also the dilution potential there as well. Yeah, exactly. That's an issue. And I suppose if shares start going down and partners are thinking I could be earning way more, at, for example, Accenture, there is this risk that there could be a, a mass exodus, I suppose, because the big the big companies are naturally a bit more stable um, and a bit more resilient in, in difficult times. And what about the, the valuation in general of the company? How do we... How do we see its prospects? You know, the the interim figures had some, you know, looks like all things go, all systems firing at the moment. Is that going to support future growth, do we think, based on current valuation? 
I mean, it's a bit tricky with evaluation because there aren't very many listed management consultancies. So when you're looking at a peer group, it's pretty small. But um, Investec actually did quite a lot of work on this and they basically came to the conclusion that at the moment... Um, Elixir's price-to-earnings ratio doesn't reflect its growth potential, basically. So there are equivalent companies who have um, less impressive growth prospects that are trading on higher multiples. So that's the the basic thrust behind the valuation case, I suppose. But then you do always have to think it is a very small company and you do have to sort of build the, the risk into the valuation as well. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting business. One of those companies in this area that's carved out a pretty good niche for itself. So we'll keep a close eye on them. For now, though, we're going to move on to a much larger company with uh, much dimmer growth prospects, perhaps it's fair to say at the moment. That's Vodafone. This is part of our income majors feature, as I say, where we look at the biggest dividend payers in absolute terms on the FTSE 100, uh, and we interrogate their dividend prospects for the years ahead. In a lot of cases, Vodafone being one such case, those dividend yields are really quite high now. Part of the reason why Vodafone's dividend yield is nearing 10% is due to its poor performance of share price-wise and uh, operationally over the past uh, year or so. Arthur, why don't we start by looking at those recent travails? You know, what, what are the big problems that it's been dealing with? What, what are the headwinds for the business? Yeah, so the sort of issues have been well documented, which are that telecoms is really expensive business to run. You need to invest a lot in... 5G and improving um, network connectivity. And by the time you've done all of that capex, often the sort of technologies we've done again, then you have to do a bunch more investment. On top of that, it's fairly competitive market. So it's hard to increase your prices significantly because then your customers will move away to different service provider. So Vodafone's return on capital employees like six or seven percent or something pretty rubbish which looks even more rubbish now that interest rates are up around like five percent i i think i've been covering now for a couple of years i when i started looking at it i wanted to remain positive but then after two years you then realize um that actually the the outlook is pretty bleak and i can see why people who have been covering vodafone for like 10 years or so get pretty frustrated with the business um and the problem they have now, which sort of newish problems, a inflation. So all these things that were going to cost loads before cost even more now. Energy prices are going up, uh, wages are going up, um, and then on top of that, there are some new specific problems for it. For example, in Germany, there's a change in regulation around the way they sell TV. So before Vodafone, from my understanding, would negotiate with like housing associations and like a group and then sign a deal with them. But from January next year, they need to negotiate with individual households, which obviously sounds a lot more expensive than negotiating with a big group. And then also, I guess it gives the households all an opportunity to maybe go choose somebody else. So um, I think Numis said that that could put 800 million euros worth of revenue at risk from January. This year, so that's a new fun issue for Vodafone to deal with in Germany, which is its largest market. The UK and like Africa are the only markets that are growing revenue terms in the last trading update. I think um, Germany, Spain and Italy were definitely shrinking. And then most of this growth is also only being generated by price rises. So the UK, I think growth was like over 5% year on year last quarter. 
which looks decent, but then they had double-digit price rises. So it's not usually a sign of a business that is healthy when all of its revenue is being generated through... Well, if it's if its revenue growth is slower than the price rises it's implementing, it's not mm. usually a great sign. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Vodafone has been trying to turn itself around and improve its fortunes for a while. It's got a new chief exec, which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, also, in trying to consolidate its businesses, you know, sell off businesses, raise some cash that way, focus on uh, core areas. But we should probably cut to the chase and talk about the dividend. You know, how... How safe is that? Is that yield? You know, what needs to happen for that to be maintained? You know, dividend growth is maybe out of the question for for the short term, but but should we be concerned about a cut? Yeah, I think we should be concerned about a cut. The free cash flow it's generating is less than the amount it. Um, well, last year it was more because they uh, disposed of Vantage Towers, um, but the forecasts for the coming years are not great um i think it needs to generate like this dividend payment it's like 2.4 billion a year and free cash flow um forecast for numit from numis the broker next year they were forecasting free cash flow of 1.9 billion which is obviously less than 2.4 billion and then it goes down to 1.7 billion for 2025 and 2026 which is um even widening the gap between its free cash flow and its um, the amount of dividends it needs to pay. Numis is forecasting that it will main, try and maintain its dividend for those three years. And obviously at a certain point, if it's not, if it's free cash flow is below um, what it needs to pay out, either it's got to make disposals, which is something that people have been um, calling for, or it needs to probably cut its dividend. The disposals point, it seems odd because it seems like everyone wants them to make disposals. The Italy and Spain businesses are the likely ones because they're particularly competitive markets um and i think there was an offer for its italian business um i think last year or fairly recently which they turned down and its new um do we what do we call them e e plus is that what we're calling them well it's written as e ampersand so i don't know if it's e and uh uae owned company who owned 15 percent of the business now apparently they don't um aren't that keen on disposals either so i feel like it's either a disposal either they make the disposals or they make the dividend cuts it almost looks like that is the the choice and seemingly they aren't they don't want to do any big disposals so for them to keep investing and keep improving the the product um that cash has to come from somewhere and it will likely probably come from the dividend i think there are some potential tailwinds, though, as well, we should talk about. In the UK, you know, there's the proposed merger of uh, Vodafone with 3UK, uh, which, you know, is seen from the company's point of view, although they probably wouldn't say it this way, as lessening competition and giving them a bit more of a um, competitive edge by, you know, merging the big four mobile operators into three, one of them being the Vodafone 3 combination. Uh, I mean, that that's quite an interesting test case as well for for competition authorities, really, isn't it? Because that is being looked at by the CMA. Uh, previously, you know, the previous deal, the O2 merger deal with um, with three a few years ago was blocked. Does Vodafone have a chance of getting this through? You know, can that give it some, some growth prospects if it can start, you know, having a bit more of a foothold in the UK market and a bit more dominance there if that does go through? From a regulatory perspective, just from the outside, presumably if the aim of 
regulation is to create a good product for the customers, which it should be, this deal looks like, at least from the outside, probably should be okay because the returns in this industry are so low and these companies are struggling to invest in their products and uh, make their products better. If the only way for them, like with a six, 7% return on capital, um, and if the only way for them to make money and be able to invest in these products is there for to be a more consolidated market, um, the consumers will, I guess it's a trade-off, right? Because they can charge higher prices if there's more consolidated market but the consumers will end up with a better product. And actually in the in the announcement of the merger, they made an effort to sort of outline, I think it was six billion pounds worth of investment in 5G over the next five years and making sort of those investment promises would presumably be to try and get the regulator on side um, and say, hey, look, we're gonna spend all this money to um, improve um, infrastructure in the UK and improve communication infrastructure. And countries and governments like have better communication infrastructure because it has all those good sort of positive externalities of being able to connect people with each other and all the benefits that come from that and running businesses etc so you've got to think given that these companies are really struggling um at the moment in the current market conditions that some consolidation is necessary and will be will be allowed how much um that will so i think the uk is its second second largest market so having consolidation there um and improved returns there will make it a better um will improve it, its prospects but um obviously that will also come with all of the free cash flow commitments needed to do all of that investment so if we're on sort of back onto the dividend topic which is what this, the income majors is all about if they've got to invest significantly in the three um uh, merger then that's potential money that would be handed out in dividends that will need to be held back to invest in 5g and improving uh improving sort of its capital base yeah that, that decision is still i think some time away the decision on that merger you know there may be concessions as well there but but yes, as you say, the the price hikes will definitely be. I think what the the CMA is is looking at too. You know, I think Vodafone, as with a lot of um, UK companies, put through inflation plus three point nine percent last year. So customers, even if they have an eye on the long term benefits of better infrastructure, are definitely feeling the pinch there. So so we'll see on that one. Uh, Mark, why don't I bring you in on on Vodafone? What are your thoughts on its turnaround potential? You know, it's very. Not even early stage turnaround, is it? Because you know the turnaround hasn't really begun. But what do you think about its prospects? Uh, this is a, a, a long time in the making as well. Um, it, it seems every reporting season, when we look at the results as well, it's a, not even a case of jam tomorrow with them. They they seem to be. Um, it, it, it's very difficult to define uh, their business model. They seem to have trouble doing it themselves. If anything, the, uh, the continued rollout of uh, uh, 5G um, stands as a sort of um, something of an impediment in terms of their uh, uh, financial prospects as well. Um, I, I was interested to listen to Arthur's comments about the, um, uh, the CMA as well and the, the likelihood of that deal going through. Uh, I would have thought uh, on the face of it that was uh, fairly unlikely as well. Um, you know, beyond selling off any, any more assets, it's difficult to see how they're going to be able to uh, boost 
those uh, those free cash flows as well. So the income prospects are um, questionable to, to say the least. Yeah. Well, while we while we wait for a potential dividend cut, you can get a ten percent yield. Uh, so you know there there is still an attraction for the short term. Shall we say that's a you know a very superficial way to look at it. We we should finish uh, on this segment though just by talking about the new chief exec Margarita Della Valle. Arthur, what you know? Do you think? She's going to be doing much different from uh, from Nick Reed. You know, he was focused on selling off some parts of their business. She's got a lot of, um, you know, big shareholders influencing her as well. You know, we've spoken about uh, the UAE. There's also Liberty Global. There's a French uh, telecoms guy in there, is now in there as well whose name escapes me. You know, is she going to do much different? Can she do anything different other than, than you know, keep trying to, to wring what she can out of the existing assets and sell off a few of them? Yeah, I think the ring what she can out of the existing assets seems to be kind of the energy I'm getting from her at the moment, just by reading um, through the last few transcripts of the analyst calls beforehand, uh, sort of when asked about when they can expect to see customer growth. It wasn't something I think she predicted imminently and seemed more concerned about generating as much profit out of the customers they still have around um in the short term and i i just just in front of me they're saying i didn't realize this if any apologies for any vodafone i feel sad for any vodafone customers out there but they, they increased their prices by 14.4 percent in the uk from the first of april which seems pretty steep that's the uh, yeah cpi plus increase going through so yeah it seems like she's definitely trying to wring out as much as possible as she can from what they have and there's only so long that can go on, right? You can only ring out <laughs> what you have for um, so long before you need to actually start adding extra customers. And um, eventually, I guess you'll have to change her attitude towards the, their growth prospects, which are probably sort of limited to um, Africa. But at the moment, it seems like she's just trying to ring out what she can from Europe. I don't know what, I, yeah, I guess the change is like, maybe they just needed a change of change of face and something else to um, show the um, markets or that people are just, um, market seems to have become a little bit um, fed up with uh, Nick Reed and he's not delivering on the prospects, but whether she'll have a Margarita Della Valle or have a um, better chance, uh, I guess time will tell on some mm. annoying phrase, but we'll see. It does seem to me that it's a group that's in sort of a perpetual state of redefinition this is the difficulty I've I've always had with the, with the stock as well. Um, even uh, leaving aside the operational basis, the fact is is that uh, the the divisional structure of the group must have changed at least twice over the last ten years, I think. And it's very difficult to get a handle on on uh, on on what management have been trying to achieve. It's unwieldy, um, and we'll, we'll see that. Uh, when we compare it to the the next company we're going to speak about as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll leave Vodafone there. You know, it's a difficult case. I, again, on a very superficial level, you look at share price down almost, well, down a quarter in the last year, down half over five years. You know, you think there's got to be some value to be unlocked there. But the question of how to do that is, is still escaping most people at the moment. Uh, but yes, as you, as you say, Mark, a very different company in our final segment. That's Judges Scientific, the scientific equipment manufacturer, or perhaps more accurately, the the purchaser of uh, scientific equipment manufacturing companies, because it does like a buy and build 
strategy. Well, that is its strategy. Uh, but let, let's talk about the, the interims, first of all, the half-year figures out the other day. What did you make of them? Uh, on, on, on the face of it, uh, they were pretty good, actually. Um, you know, we, we, there was a statutory earnings loss, but uh, this was entirely down to uh, uh, amortization costs and also um, uh, con contingent liabilities as well. You might say that's, um, you know, uh, that's going to be a regular occurrence given given the, the group's strategy itself. But looking at the underlying figures, um, profits are up um, by a third, um, 12.8 million pounds. There was a, a decent hike in the operating cash flow as well. And that came on the back of um, an improved uh, conversion rate. That's uh, significant because the, the company, it, its products actually are highly specialized, extremely expensive, usually running into uh, six figures. And it's not this, you know, the kit isn't the type of things that, uh, that uh, goes to the market every day. So you, as a result of this, you, you tend to get rather um, uh, lumpy revenues because recognition uh, is, a, is a factor. And it was in these set of results too. They also uh, pointed out that the order intake uh, had increased uh, significantly during the period under review. And I think that stretches out to around about um, 21 weeks now, which is, you know, that's decent uh, revenue visibility. So by and large, um, th these were decent figures, actually, once you look, you know, beyond the, the statutory figures too. It's 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 not you wouldn't characterise as a dividend stock as well, but they, they managed to uh, hike that by twenty three percent too, uh, on the back of a one third increase in in revenue. So you know decent figures all around, but um, I, th I think whenever you analyse a company like this, you need to really look beyond the numbers in a sense. Yeah, as you say, you know this is a company. You know it. Its bread and butter is making acquisitions. It made its biggest acquisition by by some distance uh, last year, Geotech. But but you know this kind of strategy during tough economic times can it still can it still flourish the buy and build strategy? Well, I, I don't see why not. I, I don't think it really differs in a sense. When you, I, I spoke to management um, uh, yesterday, and their comments actually chime with um, a discussion that our colleague Alex Newman had with them last year. They take um, a very measured approach uh, to their uh, M&A strategy. You know, the, the trouble with companies like this is oftentimes management feel they have to be in a position to purchase and continually purchase. And that, I think that's when you, you run into troubles. They, they were looking at geo, geotech for some time. Uh, they, they knew the management, they knew the products, uh, and they paid um, they paid a slightly higher multiple than you might expect given uh, general economic circumstances. They announced the acquisition back in April last year, I think, and it took a while to complete. So this is the first six-month period where geotech has made a, a full contribution. Uh, but even so, because of these um, issues with revenue recognition, one of Geotech's uh, divisions, uh, the coring business, which has you know tremendously been tremendously successful, but because of the nature of uh, these uh, these sales and and the monies involved, you can get a little bit delay in payment, and this is what's happened this year too. So we're going to 
probably see a you know an improvement through uh, the second half of the year too. It, it's it, I, I I think at the moment you know when when markets are down, management did point out that that you you might actually be expected um, to pay lower multiples, particularly with the period of uh, interest rate rises we've had. Some firms obviously would be under a degree of financial stress uh, if they're over leveraged as well. So you would think there's buying opportunities, but I, I certainly get the impression with judges is that they're, they take a very uh, prudential uh, approach, almost a value investing approach uh, to their M&A practices. So I, I think it just comes down to, I, I, I think it just comes down to the management philosophy there as well. And now Alex did point out um, in the notes he sent through to us this morning that uh, there's a high level of uh, insider ownership, and I, I checked that out earlier on, and it, it's quite true as well. So it always helps in, a, in companies like this when you've got skin in the game as well. They, they tend to uh, they tend to operate as if it uh, was their own money. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Alex's comments, and he spoke to uh, David Cicerell, the the CEO, last year for a feature he did on Warren Buffett, partly because uh, the CEO is a big fan of Buffett, and you can kind of see that in... I think his description of his strategy, you know, they describe themselves as quite decentralized. They don't uh, um, go in there and shake up businesses. They say main, the main reason they buy businesses is when founders retire. So it's because the business needs a change, not because they want to change it. Um, so, you know, there will be new chief execs in there, but just with a level of oversight above them. Uh, so, you know, it's quite different, I suppose, from other acquisitive companies in that regard. The flip side, though, to go back to the, you know, the, uh, the strategy versus the economic environment, I suppose, is you mentioned right at the top those uh, uh, adjusting items. You know, when you do have a lot of acquisitions, there are goodwill uh, issues that can come into play. You know, is that a is that a concern? These intangibles, as we as we go through, you know, the years ahead, that if you're not careful, I think they're just par for the course in a sense, and you've got to take that on board when you look at the figures too. So the the, the contingent figures amounted about five and a half million pounds this time around. And there's every chance you, you're going to see this in, in the future as well. As you say, that uh, geotech deal, that was a marquee deal for the, the company. It's not going to happen every year. But, uh, you know, that just comes with the territory, I think. You know, we've we've seen a, a significant increase in, in revenues uh, up by a third over the period. That may improve even further over the, the second half of the year too. So I mean, it's it's a balancing act, really. That's why you've really got to look at the underlying uh, figures for a, a company like Judges. Mm. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't. You're going to get increased amortization costs as well. But that's as I say, that's just uh, that comes with the territory. I think. Yeah. Maybe we should say a bit more about geotech. You mentioned the coring. It's analyzing geological cores or selling instruments which uh, which do that i think is uh, the main business for geotech and in some ways i mean it, it also provides services i think in that regard so it's a little bit different from just being a manufacturer which most of judges businesses are uh, so it gives it it gives it something different there too why don't we finish just on the the valuation side of things how do you see that you know the shares have had a good run up a very good run up over the past few years uh, Obviously, that was pre this deal, which may have made some people a bit more cautious. You think there's still some potential there, or you know, is it is it evenly balanced at the moment? It's very difficult to say because I mean, it is it is priced for growth now. Whether the you know, the, I think the Ford multiple given by Libram was 26 times, uh, which is uh, by no means uh, unusual. 
with this type of stock as well. So, I mean, I, 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 and and they did point out. They said that, um, you know, it, it's justified by the company's long-term track record, and uh, and they pointed out the growth prospects as well, which, uh, according to them, remain compelling. I've got no reason to uh, think otherwise on that score. Uh, I, I I just think it's one of these companies that is is particularly where ma ma management has a has a real sort of focus on what they're trying to achieve, and you know that's oftentimes that's that's half the battle itself. We've got them on hold at the moment, but um, most of the brokers that I notes that I looked at had had the um, the stock on a buy. They're trading around about twenty two percent below the consensus target price the, the rating itself is okay it's got a relatively small uh implied dividend yield there uh but i don't as i say it's not a it's not really a dividend stock it wouldn't surprise me if if, if the share price gains over the next 12 months as well because you look at it and it's got real momentum even through the dark days of the pandemic you know the the, the share price kept on uh, moving up pretty steadily so it's just a very good stock, I think. Yeah. Well, on that positive note, we've come to the end of the show. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you to Arthur and to Gemma as well. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next time with another Companies and Markets show.